Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today, folks, we're rewinding back to episode 731, Preserving the Harvest, originally done August 24th, 2011. So not as far back as we've been going, but we're still going back six years. It'll be before Barack Obama got reelected, right? That that kind of gives you a little, like, presidents, whether you like them or not, that kind of gives you a bit of uh, historical context when you start looking at things that way. So I thought this was a good time to do this show. A lot of people are getting into, like, the end-of-the-year harvest, especially, like, so down here in the south, we're actually ramping up for our fall production right now. We're coming out of our Darth, right, our Darth of summer. We have a, a period in time down here, even with you know wicking beds and aquaponics and high-intensity systems, where our production wanes a little bit. And if it doesn't wane a, a little bit because the plants are tired, it wanes a little bit because the gardener's tired. It, you know, when it's 105 degrees out, you're just not real motivated. This year's been a little different. I mean, we've had some 100-plus degree days, but we've had a dramatically mild summer. But nothing like you guys in the, you know, Shenandoah Valley or the Ohio Valley or things like that, where you have just that wonderful northeast climate that I grew up in as a kid that you heard some about yesterday. You know, this is what I remember the time. You know, you're getting late in a dove season uh, by this time. Uh, the doves are few and far between, and they're a hell of a lot smarter than they were three weeks ago. You're getting ready for archery season. And uh, your grandma still send you down the garden to pick stuff. And this is where you're coming back up with buckets of freaking food. And she's putting away chow chow and crock pickles. And when I was a kid, I was being sent up and down the road with different families' names written on the bags for the older folks to give them away and things like that. And I believe you might hear a little bit about that in today's show, but I'm not sure. Um, but that that's what was going on in my life at this time when I was in my teens. I was being sent around the whole damn neighborhood to give away food because my grandmother got to the point where she only wanted to do so much work to put it away, and I'd gotten pretty good thanks to my grandfather at growing it. So I know there's a whole swath of you guys right now going, what the hell do I do with all this stuff? So this show was designed to address that need, and I thought it was a good time to bring it back. I think this is also the show that I really got some of you to really start trying Biltong. It turned some of you into Biltong fiends. Yes, Biltong fiends. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an addictive thing when you learn that you can just... You mean salt, pepper, coriander, and vinegar, and red meat is all I need and a string to hang it up? No, it can't be that simple. Yes, oh yes it is. And uh, after you listen to the, the final part of today's show, you might be ready to go out and make some biltong. There's even an old video in today's show that shows you how to make biltong if you've never seen it before. I also talk a lot about what I consider to be the most overlooked and best method of pre preservation for a lot of vegetables. Simply freezing them with a blanching method and then a flash freezing method you'll hear me describe today. And I think as preppers, we so want to have everything be good for the next five years. But the reality is, as gardeners, we need to just think about having things in a form that we're really going to want to eat for the next five months until we start harvesting it again. 
and beans and broccoli and stuff like that. That flash freezing method is really one of the best you can do. So I wanted to make sure when I did this originally I got that in, but today I wanted to kind of point out to you that that's there and to really not overthink food preservation. Because I would definitely say that, you know, under my grandparents' tutelage as a teenager, we were preppers, though no one called it back then. We sure as hell flash froze a lot of vegetables, though. And I remember my grandfather, the first time he saw me grab a big handful of green beans that were wet from being blanched, because my grandmother had left the kitchen and throw them in the bag. What the hell are you doing? They're all going to be stuck together. And I learned the, the, the cookie tray method that I'll talk about today to get them all frozen before they went in the bag. And that way you can take out a handful at a time. Really, really simple, easy stuff. And one thing to make sure that you uh, you get out of the show, I know a lot of you guys don't go to the website and look up uh, the, the notes that go along with it. Today's episode actually gave, when it was originally published, and I've, I've made sure they're updated and all the links work, an incredible amount of resources to, uh, to do a lot of the things that I'm talking about, uh, some really great books and things like that. All of those links are updated and working. It really is worth getting by the website today to check out the show notes for today's show. And uh, remember, when you do, you can always go by tspaz.com when you shop on Amazon to support our work. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying this, uh, this walk through the early shows. And uh, I will be back very soon, very soon. We're, we're coming near the end of this series. Uh, coming up next, you'll have a two-part series with Stephen Harris on dealing with long-term blackouts, which a lot of people just went through. So it's a good time to, uh, to brush up on that. And then I will be back. I will be back with your regular scheduled programming. With that, here we go back to August 24th, 2011, episode 731, Preserving the Harvest. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridgeline, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Wednesday, October, uh, October, I wish, August 24th, 2011, and uh, this is episode 731, and today's show is called Preserving the Harvest. Like, the first time I did a show like this, somebody had to ask. Because I, I don't know, a lot of the stuff that I talk about when I do these shows, I, I never really even thought about the fact that like everybody wouldn't know. I mean, I grew up uh, in, a, in a household, or at least most of my teenage years in, in Pennsylvania, where my grandfather taught me gardening and hunting and fishing and preserving food and, you know, I mean, things like drying out garlic and hanging up in sacks in a, uh, in a, in a root cellar, for instance. It was just really just a basement underneath the old house that we actually called the shanty that was like a storage shed, but it was the original house on the property. I mean, just little things like that. It, it, to me, it just was, if you grow up with it, you don't realize that anybody doesn't know it. And it's driven home for me over the years as I've talked to people how much of this simple knowledge has been lost. I want you to understand that all the stuff we're going to talk about today, every single bit of it, is stuff that a 100 years ago everybody knew. And a lot of it is stuff that a 1,000 years ago everybody knew. 
everybody knew. I mean, we're going to start out talking about freezing and dehydration. And, and, and for freezing one is much more modern. Obviously, you didn't freeze stuff before we had freezers. You had cold storage and ice houses and stuff like that. But actual freezing, that, that's, that's coming up to the age of electricity. But, hey, man, we've had freezers for a long time. So I'm guaranteeing you, your grandmother knew how to blanch and freeze vegetables. That was just not something that anybody even thought of as being um, specialized knowledge. Today, what has happened is we have come into a world where everything is being done for us. Automation and technology have done a lot to to help mankind, honestly. I'm, I'm not somebody that bashes technology. Uh, if it wasn't for technology, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Um, even the you know, rudimentary technology, I would have had to get on the radio. But it's advanced technology, the Internet. Uh, and audio uh, files and, and compression and iPods and you know iTunes and and social media and all of these wonderful technological advancements are how I'm able to talk to you every day and help you learn more about what you choose to learn from what I talk about. So I don't tell you what to do. I give you all this information and you pick and choose what you want and leave the rest behind. But without the technology available, we wouldn't be able to do that with each other. So I'm not putting technology down, but the problem with technology is this is what's happened in my view. Back in the day when you were in school, right, especially if you're a person my age or older, uh, the very first thing you probably learned when you started taking math in like first and second grade was your, your, multipl your, you know, your multiplication, your division, your addition, and your subtraction. And you learned that, what, 1 through 12 is what I remember learning. You had to memorize all that. If you memorized all that, and then they teach you some basic algebra, like if you were doing 7 times 15, well, you could do 7 times 10 and 7 times 5 and add the two numbers together in your head, and you could come up with the answer even though you didn't have it memorized. And if we memorized 1 to 12, and then we taught, you know, then we sit down and teach you long division. Uh, you know, they, the first little mental tricks like that, they didn't even teach you that was algebra. And that's when algebra was actually useful to you before it became pointless when you thought, I'm never going to use this again with the, you know, the breaking the numbers up. And then they taught you long division and, and complex multiplication and everything like that. And eventually, you probably progressed to a point where you got this hot little thing in your hand called a calculator. And that calculator would do all of the things that you had to do in your head, and it could do them quicker, and uh, you could be doing, you know, working on something and make sure your numbers were right, and it was a great advancement. But you didn't then beat out of your head the ability to do all of the stuff that you learned to do manually. That way you could do both and you could function in society so that when you get a job, let's say your first job and you're at a store and somebody hands you money and the, uh, the, the, the product rings up for $4.26 and the guy hands you a $5 bill and a freaking penny, you know what to do. It doesn't confuse the hell out of you. Right? And unfortunately for some people, it does. I mean, try that the next time you have something that's like 26 cents, 46 cents, 56 cents. Hand the person a bill larger than the denomination and a penny. And I'm telling you, eight out of ten young people today, when you do that, they look blank in the, blank in the you know, like just what do I do now? You know? And, and at worst, you know, what they could do? <laughs> Ring it up as five bucks and hand you your penny back. Right? I mean, the fact to even just work around their confusion doesn't even enter their mind. And it's easy to make fun of those people, but then we don't know how to ferment cabbage anymore. Now, if you do, that's one thing, but I'm saying as a society, we don't know how to pour salt on cabbage. That's I'm going to talk about that today. That's pretty much 90% of what you need to know to make sauerkraut. 
cabbage, salt, pressure on the top, let the liquid fill up, you get coleslaw. I mean, coleslaw, you get sauerkraut, right? And we've lost these basic things. So my hope with my show is that, not just like what I'm talking about today, is that we're restoring these skills to America. We're restoring these skills to the modern world because we have listeners in Europe. We have listeners in Australia. We have listeners in Africa. We have listeners in South America. We have listeners in the Caribbean. You know, we have listeners in the UK. We have, I know we have listeners in Russia. We have listeners in China. Apparently, I am not banned in China. I am banned in some parts of China and not other parts. So I don't know how that works. I have listeners in Japan and all of these, and you know, China's probably ahead of us in remembering how to do this stuff. But I'm telling you right now, as they industrialize, they're going to go through the same thing we did in the 50s. And a lot of this stuff's going to go right out the window if somebody doesn't preserve it. And this is, this is a place where we need to pay attention. Because, you know, I, I love how the audience is so into the Second Amendment, owning weapons, getting training. I love that. I'm not putting it down in any way when I say this, but I love it. But, you know, I, I've been shot at one time in my life, and it was by a pissed-off farmer in Honduras that was mad because the government leased his land and didn't pay him the money our government gave their government. Uh, and it wasn't really directly at me. It was kind of indirect fire at a group of us. And that was a fluke thing. And I served in the military. And that was once. I've shot at people exactly zero times in my life. Uh, you know, take an aim and shot another human being? No, I've never had to. I've been in a handful of scuffles and fights, including high school in my life. But I've had to feed myself every day. So we'll focus on things like the tactical. We'll focus on a lot of different things, but we better focus on food because it's something we're going to have to provide for ourselves. And if we ever end up in a collapse situation, these techniques are going to be more important than ever. And some of the techniques, even though they're more modern techniques, they allow us to follow the first rule, living that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. So the first thing I have to teach you about today, if you don't already know, is something called blanching. Um, and I need to teach you that because there's a lot of different times when you may need to blanch something for different storage uh, processes, including dehydration and flash freezing. So what is blanching? Well, blanching is basically like partially cooking, and you usually do it either with steam or boiling. And a lot of cooks use blanching. They'll blanch a vegetable, uh, and then they'll just heat it up later uh, with quick steaming or grilling or something like that. And it'll stay crisper if they blanch it. So that, that's one way. But when we're talking about storing food, it, it's really pretty simple. When you, let's look at freezing, because you have to do this with dehydration with certain things too. Um, but when you freeze something, the, the cold temperature stops much of the cellular activity. And that's the stuff that normally would cause spoiling. So if you just take green beans and sit them on your shelf, they'll start to break down and degrade. And they'll start to look ugly and smelly. And they'll start to go back to what they are, component parts. You'll make anaerobic compost on your shelf if you leave them sit there long enough. But quickly they'll go to a point where they're not very appetizing, you don't want to eat them. And soon after that they'll go to a point where you really better not eat them. Okay. Now when we put them in a freezer, we stop that process. But there are some enzymes inside there that even in a frozen condition, they continue to break down. And even though we'll take them out, we look at those green beans, and they look like fresh green beans, here's what will happen if you freeze a green bean without blanching it. You'll take it out and you'll boil it. And it'll boil long enough, that, let's say, you know, boil, grill, whatever, but let's say we're boiling it. And you'll boil it long enough that you'll think, huh. They should be done by now. They're nice and bright green. They look great. And you take it out, and it's like eating a pencil. It's so crisp and hard and tough. 
And you, so you stick it in and you boil it, 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 and it just never gets soft. Or eventually you have to boil it until the plumber becomes mush, but it never becomes palatable, it's never edible, you don't want to eat it. Well, what happened? You didn't blanch it, and those enzymes are part of what caused that product process. Now, basically, what happens when you blanch something is you kill off those enzymes and stop that process. So that's the same for a cooking technique as it is for a freezing technique, but for different reasons and in different situations. As far as like what you have to blanch, the big, there's some, there's more to it than this, but the basic rules are onions, peppers, herbs do not need to be blanched. Uh, squash, sweet potatoes, and pumpkins should be fully cooked before you freeze them, and all other vegetables should be blanched before freezing. So we're kind of covering freezing and blanching together here. But I've got a website for you with a nice little chart that tells you how long to boil or how long to steam things uh, for blanching purposes. I can tell you that for my blanching purposes, I do not like to boil. I like to steam. I have a nice little two-basket steamer. We got it at Kohl's for like 25 bucks. You plug it in, it's electric. And I, you know, I could use a different method if, if the electricity was out and we were doing this in a collapse situation. But for day-to-day -day stuff, the reason I prefer to uh, blanch with steam is it's less of a mess. You take your baskets, you stick them over the steamer, you blanch them for the appropriate time of steaming, and uh, you take your baskets, you dump them uh, out, and, and you put more in, and you just keep going, and it never makes that sloppy mess that boiling does. And to me, it's much easier to not overdo it. You don't want to you don't want to cook stuff when you're blanching it. You just want to get it far enough to halt that enzymic activity. And like what I'm doing, uh, we'll just go right into one of the first ones here, which is flash freezing. I think flash freezing is one of the best methods to use if you have a chest freezer or you have the space in your freezer routinely to do this with your vegetables because it's the closest to fresh. If I take green beans from the garden and I cook them fresh for you right now out of the garden and then I take some and blanch them and freeze them and cook them for you next week, there's a difference but it's minor. It's very, very minor. And you want to get them uh, into freezing as quickly as possible. I like, I have an ice water bath for my stuff, and, and they're in that basket that I'm talking about from the steamer. So I take them straight out of the steamer. I put, go right into the ice water bath with the steamer basket, mix them around, shake them out a little bit. And what, I'll take, what I do when I freeze like any kind of vegetable is I take cookie sheets. Uh, with a piece of uh, parchment or wax paper on them, and I spread them out in a single layer, and I go set them in the top baskets of my uh, my chest freeze when I close it down. I let them sit in there exposed to the air for, I would say, about, it usually takes about 10 to 15 minutes per, per batch, and that will freeze the water on the outside of them so they won't stick together. I then go into the freezer with a big Ziploc bag, pile them in, zip it, Label the bag with a date. Usually I put a piece of tape around it and label the tape and just throw that into deep into the chest freezer. That way when I go to take them out, they're not all stuck together. Right? They're just like, you know those ones you get at the store? You know, you open that bag and all the vegetables are loose and you can take out a handful and put the rest back? That's how they do that. They, they flash freeze them and then they package them. So you can do the same thing at home. So flash freezing is a good one. I'll put a link to a website with a table with blanching times on it today, but there's lots of them. And if you don't see the vegetable you're looking for there, just type in, you know, if you're looking for, uh, I don't know, let's say, um, corn. 
does corn need to be blanched, you know, and, and if it does, how long? And type that into Google, and you'll find a you'll find a link to that. And you know, um, the answer to that one, by the way, is is yes. And the numbers are actually different depending on what you're going to do. If you are going to cut corn off the cob, and you're going to freeze cut corn. Um, you're going to blanch it for um, a little less time. If you know, with boiling three to seven minutes, with steaming four to eight minutes. Um, and you're going to need to do it about six to ten on the cob with boiling and seven to eleven with steaming. And corn, when we freeze corn on the cob, it's the one that I actually prefer to boil. It's just a little easier with the big ears and stuff like that. But my point is, no matter what you know you're looking to do, if you just type into Google the name of the vegetable and the word blanch and freeze, you're going to find an answer really, really quick. So you know, use that tool to get the answers that you need. So that's covered kind of freezing. And, um, and, and blanching at the same time, which leads us to what I consider the easiest method for foolproof long-term storage, which is dehydration. And the reason I needed to cover blanching first is that some vegetables are just about, it's about the same rules as freezing. If you need to blanch it before you freeze it, you should probably blanch it before you dehydrate it. If you need to cook it before you freeze it, you need to cook it before you dehydrate it. And if you do that, you'll get very, very good results, with an exception. Um, a lot of people would tell you, you know, that you need to, as I was saying uh, earlier, you need to fully cook or cook till tender uh, squash. And when you're talking about squashes that are pumpkin-like, I, I have found that to be true for dehydration and for freezing. So if we're talking a butternut squash, something with an orange flesh that looks like typical pumpkin, that's true, but... When it comes to summer squashes, you absolutely don't and probably shouldn't blanch at all. Now, I don't really freeze zucchini or yellow crookneck squash. I always dehydrate it, and I dehydrate it into a form that I call chips, and I love them for fresh snacking. They can also be tossed into soups and stews, and the way I'm going to tell you how to make them right now, they make a really great flavoring additive as well. What you do is you get your squash. And you just slice it. You slice it about a quarter inch thick. And um, you take those and you lay them in your dehydrator. Before you turn your dehydrator on or stick them out in the solar dehydrator if you're doing it outside, uh, get some, you know, get any kind of seasoning you really like. I've been using uh, this year Chef Keith Snow's Northern Italian, and it's very similar to what I've always used, you know, oregano, basil, rosemary, a little bit of garlic, uh, that type of thing. So I've been using his Northern Italian seasoning because I have a bunch of it because I bought a bunch from him, and it's good stuff. Sprinkle a nice little coating just on one side. So it's lay them in your dehydrator rack and just sprinkle the upside. Don't try to do both sides. It's not worth your time. Put them in the dehydrator and dehydrate. When the, uh, the moisture starts to come out, it will slightly rehydrate the uh, seasonings, which will then form like almost a glue and attach themselves to the squash chip. When you do them long enough, the quarter-inch chip, and you want to maybe probably a little bit, I don't know the right term here. It's not a quarter, but it's thicker than an eighth. It's thin, right? Somewhere in that range. When you dehydrate them long enough, you take them off there, and they'll almost be paper thin. They'll shrink that much. There's so much water in them. You should be able to bend them, and they should snap like a chip. They're awesome for fresh eating, but they will rehydrate. And with all that great seasoning on them, uh, you, can, uh, you can use them not just to add body and, and squash the things, but you can use them for flavoring as well. The big thing is like if you're adding them to a soup or a stew or something, when it's, you're done cooking it and it's just sitting there hot and liquid and you're about to serve it, 
drop them in, stir it up, give it a minute or two to rehydrate and cook a little bit, and and you're good to go. Um, if you listen to Tammy from Dehydrate to Store, she'll tell you to dehydrate at lower temperatures, uh, you know, in the 90-degree range instead of like the 115, 125-degree range that the dehydration manufacturers generally, dehydrator manufacturers generally um, suggest. I like to dehydrate squash, zucchini and, and yellow squash, at those higher temperatures, about 115. Uh, they say, well, you're cooking it. Then. Well, you do a little bit, but you want that crisp uh, result, and you get a much better crisp result with that higher temperature. Try that one. You will absolutely phenomenally love that. And then when you're trying to figure out what the hell to do with all that zucchini, well, there's your answer. That's what you can do with all that zucchini. So dehydration and freezing, to me, will take you most of the way there. They'll give you the basics of dealing with the stuff that you have out of your garden for day-to-day -day use through the winter, assuming that the power stays on and the world does not end, which is going to help you with all the other minor disasters we prepare for. You know, if you have a two-day power outage and you have a chest freezer and you have a couple jugs of ice in there with it, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay, as long as it's not the middle of summer when that happens. And in the middle of summer, you're probably not sitting on this big garden surplus. So... There's, there's, there's times to really worry about the long-term collapse of society, and then there's times to worry about getting through daily life. And I think these are the two best methods to get you through daily life, and the dehydration method will do both for you. Making the decision between the two, to me, is relatively easy. I do not dehydrate green beans. I only dehydrate green beans if I have so many green beans I don't know what else to do, and maybe I'm going to put up a can of them. It's just going to be used in soups and casseroles. I do not like dehydrated uh, green beans when they are rehydrated and served on a plate. They do not taste like a green bean anymore. They're okay. You can eat them, and if you cook them in a soup or a stew or a casserole, they're fine for that, but they never come back to being anything close to fresh. If I need a method of preserving green beans that does not rely on refrigeration, I'm going to go to the next one, which is canning. So when it comes down to how do I preserve my vegetables, do I freeze, do I dehydrate, you do both. You sample the results, you cook with them, and then you, you, you lean toward your preference of the product. That's how you make the decision in this. Now canning, canning to me is a lot more energy intensive than dehydration. So it's not a big preference of mine. My issue uh, with, with canning is it's hot, it takes a lot of time, and when you think about it, if you take a big pressure canner, uh, even you know, the biggest one you can get your hands on and fill up with jars, you spend a lot of time, you don't have that much results. There's, you, know, you end up with what really feels like kind of a few jars. But there's some things that it's so much better for than anything else. Tomatoes. Um, dehydrated tomatoes are okay, but making tomato sauce, tomato preserves and things like that. And you can do that with what's called a water bath or a, uh, uh, a you know water bath canning because it's highly acidic. Other things require pressure canning, which means you need a pressure canner to do that. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of how to can it. I just want you to understand there's those two differences. The big difference is in a water bath can, there's a little bit of water and you know the things in there and there's a lid on it and you're basically treating uh, the stuff that's inside the jars with boiling water is really what's doing the work for you here. When you pressure can, the, the vessel is sealed and only a certain amount of the steam is allowed out, and steam is at higher temperatures than boiling water itself is. 
and that higher temperature steam is able to kill everything. So now we can can a green bean. If you can a green bean with a water bath canner, you have a potential to have botulism and other infections get into your canning and cause sickness or illness or at least you know pop the lid so you know not to eat it. Uh, and it may be one or the other, and it can be dangerous. So you do not pressure can. Uh, or you do not water bath can low acid vegetables. You only water bath can high acid vegetables because they can handle it. They can, they, once you do that with them, it's sufficient to, to take care of things because the acidic environment they have creates a much safer environment for this type of storage. But, like I said, If I need to preserve a green, a huge green bean harvest, or if I go down to the farmer's market when the green beans come in, and there's a guy down there selling them for 49 cents a pound or something like that, and I buy 20 pounds of green beans, and my wife goes, what the hell are we going to do with these? And I only, I'm only going to freeze so many, because I'm only going to take up so much space in the chest freezer with green beans, and I'm only going to maybe dehydrate a couple trays of them for that casserole soup use, because it's not generally what I use a green bean for. What am I going to do with the rest of them? Well, I'm going to can them. I'm going to can them because I have a source of nutrition then that doesn't need refrigeration and is much closer to a fresh product than a rehydrated green bean. The people that are big fans of dehydration say, when you rehydrate something, it tastes exactly this. No, no, it doesn't. Some things do. Some things do, especially uh, if, when you look at the point of cooking with them. If you dehydrate a carrot, it looks like the most tiny little orange raisin you've ever seen. And when you rehydrate it and you cook with it, it's almost impossible to tell that that carrot was ever dehydrated, right? doesn't work that way with a green bean. So the things that don't dehydrate and rehydrate well for fresh cooked eating, because they don't never make a salad out of stuff like that, uh, I'm going to look more to the canning process for. That kind of leads us into the next one, which is pickling. And pickling and canning kind of go hand in hand. You do not have to can to, to, to can to pickle, but if you want pickles to store long term, after you've done the pickling process, you need to put them through a canning process so that they'll store on a shelf, what have you, sealed in a jar long term. Um, but pickling to me is... I don't know. I've never been a big fan of pickles. I I like pickled stuff from time to time, but like you're not going to see me eating a dill pickle every day. So I'm not turning all my cucumbers into dill pickles. Um, I actually prefer to use fermentation to do things like that with cucumbers, which we'll get to in a bit. But pickling and canning kind of thrown together allow us to look at a lot of different things that creates some variety in our pantry and our canning. If we just look at canning and we just say canned green beans, canned carrots, canned beets, can, you know, and that's fine. And there's a place for canned tomatoes, a place for that. Uh, but we start to put things together, then we can make relishes, we can make chutneys, and we can make my all-time favorite kind of chick chunky thick relish, which is chow chow. Uh, and you can kind of look those guys. I'll put some links to some stuff about them online, but those are just great ways, and like chow chow, this was chow chow for me as a kid. About about maybe a week from now, maybe, you know, right, in, right before dove season would start, which would be, you know, uh, right around Labor Day, uh, my grand, our, our garden in Pennsylvania was getting close to a first frost, and we really were having that, that bounty where there's more tomatoes, there's ripe tomatoes, there's green tomatoes, there's extra broccoli, there's peppers, there's cucumbers, there's cabbage, there's just everything, you know, it's just going nuts. And I would be sent down and just pick anything you can find, especially green tomatoes. And my grandmother would take green tomatoes and cabbage and cauliflower and carrot 
and put that all together in this great, chunky, relish-type, lightly pickled-tasting stuff called chow chow. And, you know, it was a long time before I learned that that wasn't the only thing in the world, and not all chow chow looked like that. There was different varieties of chow chow, and I'm kind of a chow chow connoisseur. If I go somewhere and someone has chow chow, I want to try it, buy a jar, what have you, and, uh, you know, I keep a lot of it around. And my wife doesn't really like the stuff. She's not big into anything with the pickled flavor. Um, but uh, chow chows are, are a big thing with me. So are chutneys. And, uh, again, those are some things you can learn about. And then there's, like, some creative things we can do. Like, I was down at the farmer's market here in Hot Springs a couple weeks ago. And the guy had out a few cans of different things. And one, just a white label on it with a Sharpie marker. I'm sure the FDA would not approve, not that I care. And it said on there with the Sharpie marker, zucchini relish. The zucchini relish? I never thought of that. And I really don't want to go through all the crap of shredding up a bunch of zucchinis and making relish out of my zucchini unless it tastes good. So I bought a jar for like three bucks. I brought it home. It's awesome. Uh, I like it like on hamburgers. I like it as a side dish. So, you know, now I know that that's another thing I can do with all the extra zucchinis that we end up with. So with canning, it's really a good canning and pickling. The best advice I can give you is go find some decent books on the subject. Start looking up, trying recipes and just do it. Canning is something that intimidates people. They're afraid they're going to mess it up. They're afraid they're not going to do it right. They're afraid they're going to poison themselves. They're afraid they're going to blow up the pressure canner. They're, I mean, follow the instructions, do what you're supposed to do, and everything will be fine. If people can do this a 100 years ago using a coal stove, you can do it today using your perfectly controllable electric or gas range shop. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing I can make it out to you. The big thing I want you to realize is, like I said, I don't like pickles, but then I like chow chow, I like chutney, I like relishes, I, all right? So try different things. Start learning to make jams and jellies and stuff like that, too, because, you know, you have all this apple coming. Make some apple jelly. Make some apple butter. I mean, try different stuff. And if you're not sure you're going to like something, you can probably find it in a country store, a general store, a farmer's market. Go buy a jar. Try it and go, oh, this is pretty good. If you talk to the person you bought it from, they'll probably give you the basics of how it was made. You can find a recipe that closely approximates that. Do not, please listen to me with this one, folks. Do not find a book with a recipe for how to make anything with canning. And then spend five and a half, six hours working your ass off to make 20 quarts of something, uh, put it aside, And pop one open, you know, in, in November for Thanksgiving dinner, and you and everybody else just hates it. Try the stuff first. The same thing I tell you with planting things in your garden. If I tell you about a vegetable or a fruit or something, and it sounds interesting, but it doesn't, I don't say that it tastes like something you already know you like, and you're not sure, see if you can get your hands on one. Buy one, trade for one, barter for one, find one, try it, eat it, cook it. Uh, cut it up and just eat it fresh, whatever, but try anything before you put a lot of effort, money, and time into them. Uh, but I do want to talk today about fermentation, uh, and not just for brewing and venting, we'll get to that in a minute, but just fermentation for food. I want to tell you how easy it is to, uh, to make sauerkraut. So what do you need to make sauerkraut? Here's a basic thing that you need. You need a food-grade plastic bucket. Uh, about a gallon uh, capacity, or if you want to do it old school, you want a great big ceramic crock for it. You need a plate that fits inside the crock or the barrel, something that just barely fits to make a top, 
Um, and uh, then you uh, you need about uh, some water, and uh, you need like a cover cloth. That's pretty much it. Then you need some stuff you're going to ferment. Let's say just we're going to do cabbage, and you need salt. And what you do is you chop or grate your cabbage up, and uh, however you like that, whatever kind of cabbage you want. You use green, you can use red, you can use you know combinations thereof. And uh, as you do this, start putting it into the bowl. And then sprinkle salt on it as you go. And what the salt is going to do is pull the water out of the cabbage. And this creates a brine in which the cabbage can ferment, which means it's basically going to sour without rotting. The salt also has the effect of keeping the cabbage crunchy by inhibiting organisms and enzymes that soften it. So three tablespoons of soft salt would be like a rough guideline for about five pounds of cabbage. But, I mean, it's not something you need to measure. It's just kind of you put a layer down, you put some salt on it, you put another layer down, you put some salt on it, you put another layer down, you put some more salt on it, and you keep doing that. Um, and you can add other vegetables to this. Maybe we can use some carrots shredded up or garlic or greens, uh, Brussels sprouts, um, small whole, like little tiny small heads of cabbage. Let me give you a cabbage tip. You grow your cabbage, you get a great big head. Cut your cabbage head off. Now, instead of like saying your plant's done now, take a knife and look at the, the, the stump the cabbage head came off of. Cut a cross in the stump. Cut about a half an inch deep into the stump. A perfect cross. You know, like, a, like an X, basically, but, but a cross. And what most cabbage fools will do then after you do that, they'll grow four little heads of cabbage. They'll like, cut and come again with lettuce, except you get four little cabbage heads. You can take little miniature cabbage heads and stick them right into your sauerkraut and sauerkraut the whole head. You can do all kinds of cool stuff like this. Um, you could use apples uh, sliced in with it. It are really, actually, really good. You take you make sauerkraut with sliced apples, and you cook pork with that. Oh, my God, that's wonderful. And it's so good for you, too. Uh, caraway seeds, dill seeds, uh, celery seed. Uh, anything you want to do uh, really will work. And I love the caraway seeds. That's like a Bavarian-style sauerkraut. Um, so then you mix all those things together, or just your cabbage and your, your, your salt, and then go ahead and put that all into the crock. And pack uh, just a bit into the crock at a time. Like tamp it down as you go with your fists. Uh, or like a, you can use a, a mug or something like that. But tamp it down uh, so you're really forcing it in there tight. And then you cover it uh, with a plate or some other lid that fits snugly inside the, 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 the crock. And then put a weight, like a glass jug. We always just had, we had like a, uh, a big dish, is what my grandmother would do this in. And a plate that fit in the dish. And I would just put a big rock on there. We did this with pickles too, by the way. And um, you, you put that weight on there and help, that was going to help force the water out. And uh, it's also going to keep things from getting in there until the process begins. And then you just leave it to ferment. And, I mean, you don't have to put this, don't put this in a refrigerator or something. We used to leave ours out in the shanty, but, I mean, you can put it in some corner of the kitchen or something like that. Check on it every couple days, and as the volume reduces, the liquid will continue to come up. And you might see some mold on the surface. If you do, don't worry. That's the firm. It's not... It's not a toxin. It's the mold that's doing the work. It's just like when you ferment beer and you look in at your beer fermenting and it's got all those, those little colonies on the top of yeast. It's kind of like that, uh, but different. And uh, once it's done, and you decide when it's done, uh, put it in a jar, just keep it in the refrigerator. You could then can it. 
if you wanted to. You could water bath can it, and it'll store for a very, very long time. Um, it will technically store just the way that it is in a cool environment, but if you want to be able to throw it up on the shelf, give it a little water bath canning action, and and uh, you'll be good to go. But it should be crisp. Sauerkraut that's done right is not completely soggy. It's crisp. And that's it. I mean, that's how easy it is to ferment vegetables. And cabbage is great for it. And even if you're going to do other vegetables, I recommend that you don't combine them with sauerkraut. Uh, do them together. But there's ways, I'm not going to go through it again uh, with a whole other recipe, but uh, you can do pickles pretty much the same way. Instead of all the complicated vinegar and stuff, you can do like a crock pickle uh, type of pickling. My grandmother used to do that. We would do um, either dills or uh, sweet pickles or use them in the chow chow or use them in a relish with the smaller cucumbers. And we'd take the larger cucumbers and crock pickle them. Very, very similar to this. I'll find a, a, a recipe for you that I can link to from the show notes. But these are all methods of, of preserving things. And I want you to think about something here today. When I talk about preserving food... Because we're preppers, we tend to think that preserving food means it should be able to go away for a year or two years or five years. And back in the day when there was no refrigerator, preserving food might have been making something that was going to last a week last four weeks. So if we make sauerkraut and we can keep the whole crock of sauerkraut down in a basement and just go down and take from it as we need it, maybe we have two crocks, and as one's almost half empty, we fill another one, and we just keep rotating it, and we go through a crock of sauerkraut, because that's one of the things that we have available to us to eat to survive, and we do that on, you know, every, you know, about once a month, and we get a month out of it, instead of the cabbage just sitting on the, on the shelf, or maybe we get too much out of a crock, and the longer it's there, the more sour and more lactic acid we're going to get going on there, but we can get a couple months out of something like that. Uh, we can use it in our cooking and what have you. That was more of the goal of yesteryear than let's make this stuff last for two years. See, folks, if you want to be in sync with your ancestors, understand they did store food. They stored it for like the next few months until the next season came in when new food would be available. They stored it to get through the winter. They stored it to get through hard times. They didn't store it for five years. Nobody had the luxury of even thinking about storing food for five years. So as you're looking at these different methods of storing, and even though some of them will last damn near forever, dehydration, you're looking at 15 years for most things. Uh, without going to any extraordinary methods, and I actually go to what I consider to be extraordinary methods. Uh, I get USDA, FDA uh, rated food grade paint cans. I get them from a company called the Carry Company. And I put my food in there, and I throw an O2 absorber in there, and then I put the cap on it, and I take my little uh, P-Touch, and I create a label that says what's in it and when it was done, and I put that on there, and I shove those, and they have, like, I think that's their quart size, or their quart pint size, and they fit into my cancellate, uh, my uh, shelf, shelf Reliance uh, Harvest 72 can storage system. So to me, that's an extraordinary method because it's it's taking a lot of things that you don't need to do. If you take a standard canning jar, and fill it up with dehydrated vegetables of just about any variety. And then you stick an O2 absorber in there and put a, a, one of those canning lids on there and screw a, the, loose, the ring on there that you use for canning and stick that in your cupboard, it'll last longer than you need it to last. If you put them in a Ziploc bag with no O2 absorber and zip it up, they'll last years. 
years. Now, you'll get a better result if you take a little bit more time. But if you're doing it for the next, you know, if you're taking everything that you're doing this year for your harvest and you're dehydrating, you're going to use it all, you're going to use it all through winter. You're not trying to make it last five years. You can pretty much put it in Ziploc bags and throw it, throw it up on the shelf somewhere. Maybe get a box that you keep all your dehydrated vegetables in and they will be fine. All right. Unless some type of pest gets in there and it's highly unlikely anyway. So, so I, I, my point is, is, is some of this stuff, some of this stuff is designed to, to or is, is capable of this really long-term storage. But it's really more about weeks and months than it is about years. Because it's about storing and making the food that you're going to use over the winter or over the, and through the spring until harvest comes, or even during the summer, last in absence of modern conveniences in many situations. Um, and that leads us to our next one, which will last a very, very long time, which is brewing and venting. I won't talk about this a lot today because I've done whole shows on brewing and venting. Let me just say that if you're not a home brewer and you drink beer... Uh, learn to be a home brewer. Even if it's just basically becoming an extract and specialty grains brewer, I'm actually thinking about throwing a little ebook together on, on home brewing uh, that's all about having a single uh, type of malt extract. Malt extract, when you make beer, is basically instead of doing a mashing process, it's already be, been done for you. It's the, it's the sugars and other things extracted from the grain. And the reality is people have like darks, super lights, light, amber, all these different things. Well, if you know how to use specialty grains, which are like caramel malt, chocolate malt, and things like that. These are not like chocolate malt at the candy store. This is malted barley roasted and, and, and kilned and, and other things done with it. You can make any style of beer using a single base malt extract, light malt extract. So you can store an awful lot of that either dried or in a syrup form. And you can get it very, very inexpensively when you buy it in bulk. And then you can get little cans or little buckets and store a bunch of different specialty grains. And if you have a grinder and you set it to crack instead of to make flour, uh, you have everything you need to make anything from, from a super light honey ale to a really dark, robust stout. And anything in between and any color, flavor type of beer you can think of. So one of the reasons, though, that I mentioned beer today, because we're talking about all kinds of stuff here that you're going to buy and store versus the stuff from your garden or your homestead. Once you start making beer, you start realizing a lot of stuff you grow can come in, come in and be used for beer. Um, the main reason I like to grow winter squashes like butternuts or long neck pumpkin or anything like that or any type of a pumpkin is because I can cut it up and I can make cool, really awesome pumpkin ale uh, to serve around Thanksgiving with it. So, you know, that's one example. If you have an apple tree, apples and beer are meant to go together. Oh, my God. If you don't brew an apple beer at some point, there's something wrong with you if you're a home brewer. Uh, things like, like cherries with either porters or stouts, I, I, it's it, that chocolatey connotation that a porter or a stout has, and you put cherries with that, you, you, you can't do better than that. That's just... That's just, you know, for a beer drinker anyway, that's just like, I'd rather have a cherry stout for dessert than a piece of cherry pie. I really would, not because of the alcohol either. Um, it's less calories, it's less bad for me, and I'm going to enjoy it more as far as I'm concerned. Especially chilled to cellar temperatures instead of, you know, ridiculously cold temperatures like we do with lagers in America. Um, and, and enjoyed on a cool evening sitting on a deck after dinner. Wow. 
Uh, so there's all kinds of things you can put into beers and wines that come out of your garden. I'm just saying to think a little bit creatively there. And for you home brewers that are extract brewers that are not doing mash brewing, and I'm an extract brewer myself. I don't have, I don't have any more time in my life to, to add the additional time it takes to mash. Um, start working on recipes using um, just pale malt extract. And learn to get all your color, your flavor, your nuances from your specialty grains. It will simplify everything. And the other tip I'll give you on brewing today on the beer side is find two or four or six hops that you love. And stop this nonsense with 72 different varieties of hops in one beer. You know, if you look at classic uh, English ales, uh, you can go with... Uh, with, let's say, Fugels, which is one of my favorite, and Kent Golding. You go into everything in Europe, from Germany to Belgium and everything else, Tetanang and, and, uh, and Saz, and uh, come up to the United States and go with Cascade and Northern Brewer. Oh, my God, I can brew anything you can think of. Uh, and, and you'll like it when I brew it for you. And if you simplify malt extract, a half a dozen varieties of hops, um, there are specialty beers where you're going to want to use that expensive liquid ale yeast, but there's some really good quality uh, dry uh, dry ale yeasts available today. That way you can have a big stack of them in your freezer. They store great, or your refrigerator. They store great there. Hot pellets or or hot plugs in your freezer. Uh, so I've got my yeast here, and and, and you, you decide on Saturday I want to brew. And it's not, well, I need dark malt extract and these four different hops and this specialty yeast strain. It's just, okay, what do I feel like making today? I want to make a brown mild. Okay, five, five pounds of light malt extract, some chocolate malt, a little bit of dark crystal malt, and a good English ale yeast. I'm going to use an ounce of uh, Fugel's hops for bittering, maybe a, a half ounce at ten minutes for some aroma and flavor, and then maybe right at the flame out, they call it, I'm going to toss in the other half ounce and use two full ounces of Fugles, and that's just going to basically be an aroma hop, and, and done. And, oh, well, you know what? I don't want to make that today. I want to make an American Amber Ale. Well, fine. I'm going to use seven pounds of light malt extract. I'm going to use some of that same uh, crystal malt, but I'm going to use a little bit more of it. I'm going to forego the chocolate malt. Maybe I'll put just a couple teaspoons of roasted barley in there, just a little tiny bit for some bite. I'm going to go with Cascade hops for that citrusy flavor of, of North American classic micro brew, maybe an ounce and a half for bittering, a little bit more aggressive there, and maybe a half ounce for the last five minutes to let some of that citrus flavor of the Cascade come through, and bam, right? Uh, two totally different beers. You want something different? Okay, fine, we'll do it again. All right, light malt extract, three and a half pounds. Then we're going to take honey, two and a half pounds. And uh, then we're going to do that with Cascade hops, an ounce and a half during the boil. And we're going to let that go to uh, fruition. And then at the, at the last five minutes, we're going to use another half ounce Cascade hops. We're going to get something that almost looks like American light beer. It's going to have light body from the honey. It's going to taste an awful lot like almost sort of kind of like a stronger Belgian ale, but it's going to be something that your, your Coors Light drinking buddy can drink and go, oh, that's pretty good. And I can do two things with that. I can get a classic American ale yeast with it, and uh, I can I can get a classic kind of an American ale. The more neutral I go, the closer I'm going to get to the uh, to the classic American Pilsner world, even though I'm doing an ale. Uh, or I can use a Belgian ale yeast strain and just go with that and bring some nuances in and stuff with it. There's even a decent uh, dry Belgian ale yeast today. It's called T58. You can get it from uh, Midwest Brewing uh, Company. Uh, so look, just I know a mini homebrew episode there, but. 
All I'm trying to make the case of it is I've gotten back into this, and you can tell I'm excited about it. I decided that the last time I did this, I had, you know, you know, my freezer, and there was 10 different varieties of hops, and all, and I, every time I needed something to go to a homebrew store and all, I so decided to simplify and learn to do more with less. And I think you can do a lot of the same things with wines. And if you learn to make great base beers and great base wines, then you can go out and grab blackberries and make blackberry wheat beer, or you can make blackberry wine. You can make a blackberry and muscadine wine, and people will fall over themselves to consume it. So start realizing that the fermentation process can be anything from fermented vegetables to beer and wine, and all of these things can be combined together. I want to talk real quick about making liquor. And I don't mean distilling. Distilling, of course, for consumption in the United States is illegal. Not that I care if you do it at all. Just, you know, you're on your own if you do, and I'm not going to tell you how uh, for the purpose of consumption. I'm talking about liqueur-like schnapps. I'm talking about liqueur-like, you know, some brand names would be like Drambuy, Amaretto, and things like that. Um, it's really, really easy to do. What you need to do, and you can do this with brandies, and you can, you know, just a, 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 a regular brandy. You can do it with uh, all different types of, uh, you can do it with a whiskey. But the classic is to use vodka to allow uh, for no flavor to come really from the, uh, from from the uh, the alcohol base itself and allow the flavor of uh, the fruit, let's say, to come through or the herbs or the spices to come through. So here's one that I've made a lot, and uh, this is something I really enjoy. This is a moderation thing, folks, because it's sweet from the sugar and it's high in alcohol. It's not like having a beer. You don't go pour a glass of this. This is something maybe you pour two ounces of and you go sip again on that back porch on a cool winter evening while you watch the leaves fall from the tree or the first snow hit the ground. Blackberry liqueur. You take a cup of water and you take about two cups of sugar, white, just plain old white sugar. Boil the water, dump the sugar in, okay? And um, dissolve the sugar completely in the water. Take the boiling water off the, the the heat so that it's not boiling anymore. You don't want to set any pectins. And take your your uh, your blackberries. And what you want is about three cups, two and a half, three cups of blackberries. Freeze them and take them out and put them into a cheesecloth. And then take that cheesecloth, tie it shut, drop it into your hot water. They'll dissolve. They'll defrost from the heat. Use a wooden spoon and kind of mash them inside of there. Mash the mash the heck out of them. And uh, when you've got them good and mashed and completely, you know, you can tell they're all soft. They've all become, uh, uh, you know, un they, they, they've all defrosted is the word I was looking for there. Uh, and the reason you freeze them, you don't have to you use fresh ones, but they will, when you freeze them, their cells rupture. And when you put them into the hot sugar water and pasteurize, you don't really need to pasteurize them, but that's what's happening. Uh It, it just releases the juice. And you can do this with most fruits. Uh, if you freeze them, especially berries, you get a better release when you put them into that hot water. So just wring, I mean, just push and mash them until you get as much as you can. And the water will turn this beautiful purple color. Uh, take them up and squeeze out every drop you can get out of there. If there's, uh, if you, if you've gotten any of the blackberry pulp or anything's come through and that's going to bother you, pour it through another clean cheesecloth and strain it. Put that into a bottle with about three cups of, uh, of 80 proof vodka. It's done. You can drink it now. 
It's not going to get any better than it is the day that you made it, other than you probably wanted to let the temperature come down and cool. Make sure when you add the vodka that the water's maybe warm but not still hot. You don't want to cook off any of the alcohol in the vodka. If you want to make a stronger version, there's a couple ways to do it. You can reduce the water and sugar, or you can increase the proof of the vodka. And that's really the way to do it. If you increase the amount of the vodka, you're going to kind of water down the overall flavor. But you can do this with anything. You can do it with strawberries. You can do it with, uh, I'll give you a way to make an orange liqueur that is unbelievable. And you don't even put the orange in the alcohol. Um, what you would do, this works really good with a nice brandy. Uh, Presidente brandy would work good for this. Uh, you fill a container uh, with brandy. And then you take a orange or two oranges and you use strings and toothpicks to tie them so they won't even touch the brandy. So they'll suspend above the brandy in the container and you seal the container. And the fumes from the brandy uh, interact with the orange peels and cause the oils in the orange oil to be released from the orange, and they'll drip down into the brandy, and you'll need to leave it in there. The oranges will start to look like two big, ugly, nasty-looking raisins. When they look like that, take them out and throw them away. If anything's fallen into your brandy, strain the brandy, and you have an orange brandy. You can. That's more of like something you would use to make a margarita with or something, but there's all types of really cool things you can do uh, with liqueur. Uh, to store things. If you're not a drinker, I know this is really not your thing, this part of today's show, but it is a way to take some of those things that are spring and summer oriented and carry them through winter, at least the flavor and the remembering of them. The last thing I want to talk today about is smoking and curing meat. Uh, actually, second to the last thing. Uh, with smoking and curing, I'm not going to go too deep into that other than to tell you that they're very, very different things. You often cure smoked meat. But smoking meat does not cure it in of itself. When you're going to, to, to cure meat, you need to use salt and sugar. Um, those are the two things you use for uh, curing meat. and You generally use about twice to uh, three times as much salt as you do sugar in a curing mix. And then there are things like sodium nitrate and sodium nitrite. Uh, which some people have a real big problem with. But if you want meat to have, like, if you're going to do corned beef and you want it to have that pretty pink color, it, it's it's that pink curing salt, which is either nitrite or nitrate, I don't remember which one, that gives it that. And it's not that the salt won't do it. There is a flavor enhancement. And I think if you're eating it every day, it's a problem. But I don't freak out if there's some nitrite or nitrate in something that I'm eating. I know the health freaks are going to email me and tell me how bad it is for me. And I can tell you that breathing air today is bad for you. The big thing I want you to realize, though, is you'll often cure meat, and then you'll smoke it. But if you just smoke meat, it doesn't really cure it to where it's going to last the way that the, the curing process allows it to do. Uh, there's a great article at utahpreppers.com about curing meats and telling you all of this great stuff that I'll just link to today. But I think that everybody that, that can do it should eventually have a smokehouse, not just a smoker. Uh, a nice smokehouse will let you do things that it's very hard to do in a small smoker. When you, when you smoke uh, meats, especially cured meats, you want to keep your temperature way, way down. And it's very difficult to do in a small environment. If you use dampers to control the fire too much, what happens is you get a lot of like creosote. You get this black coating on everything, and it has kind of a bitter taste, and it 
doesn't give you the results you're looking for. And if you let the fire burn too much and keep the smoke a little bit more clean, then your temperatures go too high. When you use something a little bit larger like a smokehouse, you have your, your, your firebox on one side and you push your smoke through, it's much easier to keep the smoking temperatures you're looking for. Uh, but they have some links on this Utah Preppers. One is to make your own corned beef and one is to make bacon. I think those are a great project. And one is brining a chicken. Um, but basic salt brining coupled with smoking will greatly enhance the, the shelf life of meats and fish. I mean, if you just take some basic saltwater brine and, uh, and, and brine fish with that and then smoke the fish until it gets kind of that tough, uh, red, uh, can, can, you know, red, reddish brown color, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, when you, when you pull it open, most of the moisture's gone. Uh, that'll store very well in a cool, dark, dry environment, not necessarily refrigerated for quite a long time. Um, when we add the salt, when we add the salt, that's when we take things to another level. When we just smoke things by themselves, we're, we're basically cooking with smoke. And we're going to get the same type of shelf life that we would uh, w without much attitude anyway as if we had just cooked it. So if we smoke uh, a piece of beef, or if we, um, let's say, just cook it on the grill and fully cook it, those two pieces of meat are not going to store much differently. If we salt a piece of beef and then we smoke it, we're going to get an entirely different type of storage life out of it. And that leads us to the kind of the big, you know, final all preppers need to know about uh, beef jerky and biltong. Beef jerky and biltong. Uh, beef jerky is generally dried either in the sun or with smoking, smoke heat, and uh, you cut the meat thin and you cure it with salt. And uh, that's and then you do whatever kind of recipe you want beyond that, and you end up with beef jerky, and you end up with thin, uh, thin, easily broken pieces of meat if you do classic beef jerky. Biltong is a South African thing. It's actually a Dutch thing the Dutch bought to South Africa, and the South African native population went crazy with it. And it's like the national thing now. It's like you go to soccer matches in South Africa, and they sell sticks of biltong uh, the way we sell peanuts, popcorn, and uh, hot dogs at a baseball game. Uh, but it's, it's cured with um, vinegar and salt. And it's a light coating of vinegar and salt. The chief difference is that the meat is cut much thicker. I'm talking about one inch by one inch is kind of your minimum thickness to do biltong properly. In both cases, you want to trim as much fat from them as you can. It kind of tastes like nasty rancid candle wax if you leave the fat on them. So it was really great for bush meat, which is what biltong was originally uh, invented for. I have a whole video, uh, actually two-part video series on YouTube on how to make biltong, exactly how to do it. I'll link to it from today's show notes. But it's it, to me, is so much superior to beef jerky. I love beef jerky, don't get me wrong. But if I can have biltong or jerky, I'm going to take jerky. The big ingredient that always goes on biltong that I have not really seen go uh, on beef jerky until you know kind of recently I've started to see a lot more of it. And when I say recently, I mean the last 20 years. I mean, if you go back to traditional beef jerky made by the mountain men in the 1800s, salt meat, put it in the sun, dry it out. Uh, somebody figured out black pepper tastes really good on there. When you make biltong, black pepper and coriander go on the meat. So you take your meat and either get a spray bottle and mist it with apple cider vinegar, and any vinegar will work, I just like apple cider, or get a dish and put like an inch of vinegar in there and just you know kind of roll the meat in there so it's coated on the outside. Lay the meat down, throw your salt on it, 
black pepper, coriander, let that sit for a day in the refrigerator, and then hang it up and let it dry. Unless you live in a really, really humid place, uh, you can just let it dry. You can dry it out in the shade, honestly. I like to dry it inside my home. Uh, I like to make it uh, when, when I'm still running the air conditioner is the best time because the air conditioner dries the air. If you live in a humid area and if your meat doesn't dry properly for you, I've had some people tell me that some of their meat's gotten some mold on the outsides and all. It's probably not going to hurt anything, but you do want it to dry and cure for you. When it's done, you should pick up a piece of biltong that looks like it's going to weigh like a half a pound and it should weigh like a couple ounces. Uh, it's almost a mummification of the meat. It's, it, 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 it's, uh, you'll have to do it to really understand what I'm talking about. Um, and to, for that to happen, you need a dry air environment for this to happen. So if you're having any problems with your biltong drying out, simply put a simple fan in the room and blow air across your biltong. It'll dry much better for you. Um, I did an experiment, and you'll see this in my video, where people were saying, well, what, you know, what about using a dehydrator on the lowest setting? When I did that, the first day, the meat of the dehydrator looked so much better. The finished product that hung just hung up in my office, just a string going across the, the office and just dangled there while the dogs looked at it with their mouths watering, came out much better in the end. So you can look at that video to learn more about Biltong, because uh, I'll kind of wrap up here at this point. But I just wanted to kind of give you an overview of different ways that you can store foods. The big ones, though, learn to dehydrate and figure out the stuff that works best for you to dehydrate. Dehydrate that. Definitely learn to flash freeze. Get yourself a, a basket so you can boil blanch or get yourself a steamer like the one I have and start flash freezing your vegetables. It is the best method of preserving your vegetables and having them taste really good uh, when, you, uh, when, you, when you pull them out and actually use them. to still taste fresh like they came out of your garden. Uh, definitely, I would say, learn about fermentation. Uh, learn to make some sauerkraut. I think that if you... If you learn to like sauerkraut, and I think it kind of can be an acquired taste, but if you learn to like sauerkraut, you'll have a whole new reason to grow things like cabbages and kale. Uh, and that's another great thing to add into your uh, sauerkraut mixtures is some kale. Uh, shredded kale will work really good in there. And try this. Try taking a piece of pork and simmering it with sauerkraut. Uh, and if the sauerkraut doesn't have caraway seeds, add your own, uh, Bavarian style, and simmer it till the pork falls apart. Simmer the pork uh, in, in, in by itself. Just a little bit of water in the bottom uh, sealed so it doesn't dry out and cook it till it's almost ready to fall apart and then cover it in sauerkraut and cook it for about another hour so you don't overcook the kraut. Um, and Oh my, I'm just saying that that was like a New Year's thing for us in a Ukrainian household was pork and sauerkraut. Uh, my grandma always screamed at me about the caraway seeds. That's German. Yeah, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I mean, th these are like, those are some, and, and the, the, uh, the, the fermentation process, it provides so many uh, beneficial uh, probiotic bacteria for your intestinal tract. It will make you healthier. I, I definitely say if you drink it all, learn to make beer, make, learn to make wine, learn to make mead, learn to make liqueurs. If you don't drink, fine, don't worry about that. But I would say even people that don't drink, if you're going to cook with wine, I mean, you can make a couple batches a year, provide yourself all the cooking wine that you need. And uh, if you are a non-drinker and you're cooking things that call for wine, do not use grape juice and do not be afraid to use wine. When you cook with wine, the alcohol is gone okay 
please do not be non-drinkers that won't cook with wine. I do not understand if you don't drink because of the alcohol. If you have some like hatred of all things alcoholic, fine. We all live our own lives. We're all free people. But if it's just, I don't wish to consume alcohol personally. Recipes that are cooking recipes that call for the use of wine or brandy or anything like that. When you cook alcohol, you boil the alcohol straight off. There's nothing left but the flavor underlying. And you cannot, you cannot make a really great linguine and clam sauce with freaking white grape juice. It cannot be done. So don't be afraid of the wine. So even the non-drinker may want to make a little bit of wine, maybe one batch a year just for cooking. It's a great way to personalize things. And if you have grapevines, it's a much less expensive way to get your wine for cooking. Um, I would definitely say it's probably a good idea eventually at least learn to do water bath canning for your high acid things and for preserving things that are highly acidic. Like if you make sauerkraut and you want to kind of stop the process, be done, and have long-term off-the-shelf sauerkraut, uh, you can go ahead and you can can it if you make larger batches of it and you want to do that. So those are the ones I would definitely make sure that you learn how to do. If you love meat, and who doesn't other than vegetarians, who I appreciate you, respect you, but do not understand anybody that doesn't eat meat. I just don't. Uh, meat some good stuff. And I think that if you run your, your, your tongue across your upper teeth, uh, right as you get under your eyes on both sides, you'll, you'll feel the, uh, the eye teeth that will tell you that we're meant to consume meat. Human beings are omnivores. Uh, but if you eat meat, then learn to do jerky, learn to cure, learn to do biltong, uh, and learn to smoke. And the big thing in all of this, learn to cook. Man, learn to cook. Experiment. Don't eat the same crap every day. You bore yourself. You bore your family. This is why Americans go out to eat as much as we do, because we've lost the cooking skill. So learn to use all this stuff, not just to preserve it. If you do that, you'll eat more at home. You'll eat healthier. Your body will be in better shape. You'll lose weight. You'll feel better about yourself. You'll have a bigger reams in the garden and fish and hunt and all this other stuff. And you'll get more out of your homesteading and your prepping. And you'll be a healthier, happier person for it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we Follow all the rules There's a better way To do this Let me show you A better way Nobody up there cares